Well, it's good to be here with you again this evening. And this evening, I want to conclude this series about the Bible. So we've been looking at how we got this book. <clears throat> First, we looked about how it was inspired by God. It was breathed out by God. He let humans write it and let their individual personalities come through. And it uses language just like we do. Second, we looked at why we believe the Bible is true. We believe it in faith plus. It's a faith based on evidence, and we believe it because it leads us to him. And thirdly, we looked at how the Bible was compiled and preserved. There was no person or committee or church council that decided what was going to be part of the scriptures. Neither was it given by an angel or God said, this is what's going to be in the scripture. Rather, it was the consensus of the church over several centuries. And then we looked at how it was preserved by the scribes. <clears throat> Today, we want to look at how, the, how did the Bible get into English? Why are there different versions? Is there only one right version that is inspired by God? And for a text this evening, I want to use a beautiful passage that's very familiar to us. This text has great truths about God and what he's done for us. And so I have it here for us. And if my technology works right, we'll be able to listen to it here. En arche in logos, que o logos in proston theon. Turn to your Bibles to that passage. Que theos in o logos. Utos in en arche proston theon. Panda de aftu e geneto, que choris aftu e geneto uden. Ο γέγονεν. Εν αυτό ζωή είναι και η ζωή είναι το φως των ανθρώπων. Isn't that beautiful? Are you inspired? You probably could hear at least one word. Maybe anyway. I don't know. Did anyone catch any words? What'd you catch? Logos. Okay. Uh, well, maybe you don't like that one. Then listen to this one. In principio erat verbum, et verbum erat apud Deum, et Deus erat verbum. Hoc erat in principio the same apud scripture. Deum, omnia per ipsum factus ut, et sine ipso factum est nihil, quod factum est. Turn to John chapter 1. The first was in what? What language? Greek. Greek. Second one was in what? Latin. Latin. Yes. <clears throat> let's read it in English. Uh, let's do it together here. John chapter 1, 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, <clears throat> and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. 
That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This passage is incredibly rich. Imagine that all you know about this passage is what you just heard. Now, the preacher could then tell you what it says. But in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It talks about how we can become sons of God. The Bible was not written in English originally. It wasn't available in English for about a thousand years after the canon was finally finalized. After it was decided what is part of the New Testament, it wasn't available in English much. The Latin Vulgate, which I believe that's what this is reading from. I'm not 100% sure if it's the Vulgate or not. Um, it was the main version in Europe. It was in a language commoners couldn't understand. Latin was very handy uh, for Europeans because any highly educated person, any scientist, uh, could speak Latin. So it didn't matter if you spoke Italian or French or German, you all spoke Latin as well, and so you could communicate. Um, but if you were just a commoner, it sounded about, well, you've heard the term mumbo-jumbo? You heard that term? It's just a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. That, that term actually came from uh, the priests saying mass. So we went to church, and the priest said mass, and they said it in Latin, and some of the priests weren't very educated, and they just sort of mumbled through it, and so just mumbo-jumbo. That's where that expression comes from. So imagine going to church, and that's basically what you hear. Just, you hear noise. <clears throat> of course, even though the gospel had reached Europe and England, the common man had little access to a Bible and couldn't read it if he had it. And so the fact that we today can read the Bible in English means that someone had to translate it. And we almost forget that. I mean, we know that, of course. I don't think anyone thought the Bible, I'm assuming nobody here thought the Bible was written in English, but it's just always been in English. But it wasn't, really. <clears throat> and of course, we believe to have a Bible in English is pretty important. And so we have it, and we have multiple translations. And I want to look at translation tonight and then a bit how this applies to uh, how this should be for all people and then some observations on the whole series at the end. But translation happens through people. It involves judgment calls. So should we translate it this way or should we do it this way? Uh, what word should we use for this? If you're on a translation teams, you, team, you might have discussions um, with native speakers. Well, 
what word would mean this in your language? Well, what about this word? What about, and actually it's pretty important that you understand the language well. Uh, I heard of a case where a translator <clears throat> had translated, I think this was in Hoti, um, and had been there a while, had translated Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And they'd done the best they could, the best they knew, but basically said, it said something, I don't have it written in my notes, but something to the, along the fact that <clears throat> a long time ago God created the heaven and the earth and I watched him do it. That's what their Bible said. I mean, they hadn't finished it, but... And they had no idea that's what it said. They thought it was saying, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But in that language, whenever you speak, <clears throat> you speak differently if you saw something happen or if someone else told you it happened. We don't have that in English. I mean, we can tell you, but it's just the... It's, you don't need to say that I saw it happen. It's just the very form I use means I saw it happen. And this lady had simply translated, used the words that she felt best, thought um, best to use. And so far as, you know, when in the beginning, well, there was a word they meant, used that meant very long time ago. And so that's the word she used. Um, she didn't know there actually was a word that meant in the beginning. And <clears throat> uh, fortunately, others came along and learned the language better and the culture better and were able to uh, change that. Um, but if a, tr if a translation is done correctly, it doesn't seem like a translation. I mean, does this seem like a translation? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, maybe it's a bit archaic, since this is uh, King James. But we don't think about it, oh, well, it was obviously not written in this language. No, it sounds like it was written in English. And a good translation will do that. But, and how do you do that? How do you do it literally and accurately? Well, I just want to say up front here, there is no perfect translation. Yet, God has made his words so it can be translated into other languages than what it was given originally. I really believe that. <clears throat> now, I want to look here at the Bible in English, a bit the process from the English Bible to today. So, how did... How did we get to the versions that we're used to? And I don't nearly have all the modern uh, versions in. We have a wealth of versions in English, <clears throat> but you'll recognize some of these when we get closer. The earliest <clears throat> translation of the Bible in English was in the late 800s. Uh, parts of the Psalms and the Ten Commandments were translated into English. <clears throat> Um, Alf, king Alfred the Great, he was an Anglo-Saxon, a Germanic king. He worked to educate clergy in southern England, and he began to translate the Psalms and the Ten Commandments. So by the 800s, we had some scripture in English. Um, by the 900s, we have the Gospels in the various English dialects. Yes, yes, sir. Uh, not, not this old English, no. If you read William Tyndall's, I mean, you can sort of read it, but using the different letters, some different letters. Actually, even the original King James 
you could read it, but you know it's not. So Pendle English was uh, fifteen twenty-five is when he translated. Yeah, so it has been some changes there. Thirteen eighty-two, we have John Wycliffe. He thought the Bible, the common people should be able to read the Bible, and so he translated it into English. Now he translated it from Latin. He didn't go to uh, from the Greek and Hebrew. He used the Latin Vulgate, translated it into English. So that was the first complete English Bible. Um, after he died, he was condemned as a heretic and so forth, but he was able to do so, so as part of the Catholic Church. This was before the Reformation, so uh, this was part of the Catholic Church. <clears throat> In 1525, we have William Tyndall's New Testament. Um, I suppose numerous of us are familiar with him. I think there's a storybook I read when I was young, Thrilling Escapes by Night, I think. I, mean, I haven't read it in years. Any of you read that? I think maybe Rod and Staff or Christian Light, I don't know. That's the story of William Tyndall. Um, but this was 1525 that he completed the New Testament. Um, and this is fairly significant for our English Bibles because it depends where you read, but up to 90% of the King James Version is out of this. Now, the spelling's changed a little bit. But the way it reads, um, the expressions that it's used, up to 90%, some would say a little lower than that, came out of uh, Tyndall's New Testament. <clears throat> this one was based on Erasmus's recently published Greek text. So unlike Wycliffe's being translated from Latin, this actually, the New Testament was, uh, was translated from Greek. Erasmus was a uh, Catholic scholar. He had a lot of, crit uh, during the same time that Martin Luther would have lived, Conrad Grebel and those people. Um, he did cri criticize the Catholic Church pretty heavily, but never left, because one of his critiques was, well, <clears throat> if we don't go by what the church says, then who says? If you say, well, go by the Bible, but then who, who gets to interpret that? We're going to have hundreds of churches if we go down that route. I mean, he was a little bit off. It's thousands of different churches. Um, but anyway, he had published a Greek text. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But Tyndall would have used Erasmus's uh, Greek text. Um, <clears throat> one thing he did include in his New Testament was, and a lot of these early uh, Bibles were this way, they had notes, side notes. We could say study notes. And these notes were critical of the Catholic Church. And so... Um, it was banned by the English king, Henry VIII. Um, Tyndall actually had to leave England in order to do this. He wanted to translate it with the permission of the English church, <clears throat> which was still Catholic at that point, um, but was not able to do so. So he moved to the continent, um, lived in Antwerp, which would have been Holland area, a position of comparative safety, However, in 1535, he was betrayed by a fellow Englishman, and he was arrested. After a year and a half um, imprisonment, he was strangled and burned at the stake. And this was a man that was very, very well-educated, college degrees, could read Hebrew and Greek. He had it made. He could have had a very easy life, 
and he gave that up so that we'd have a Bible in England uh, in English. <clears throat> it's reported that his last words were, "Lord, open the King of England's eyes." This was in October sixteen, uh, October sixth of fifteen thirty six. Well, even as he was praying that, God was already working. 1535, Miles Coverdale um, produced the Bible. And because in the meantime here, the English, the English church had broken from uh, Catholicism. Um, if you know your world history, you know Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife because his wife wouldn't give him any male offspring. And so he wanted to divorce his wife. He wanted, well, he wanted the Pope to annul his marriage, but the Pope couldn't afford to do that because his wife was a relative of the emperor and the emperor would have been upset if he would have annulled the marriage so he couldn't annul the marriage. And so King Henry VIII just said, well, we're just gonna break away. We're gonna, have, we're gonna leave Catholicism with the Church of England. And so then we need a Bible. <clears throat> and so... They wanted an English translation, and this was approved by the king. So his prayer was answered, really, from 1525. Um, by 1535, there was being a translation here uh, in English with the approval of the king. Um, this Coverdale Bible, <clears throat> parts were revisions of Tyndall's Bible, and parts were new translations from German and Latin. It was the first complete Bible in English. Now. Again, I'm not 100% sure there on Tyndall. Um, I know he did the New Testament and had worked in the Old Testament, but when you study some of these things, it's a little hard. It depends if you look at read this source or you read this source. They don't always agree. Um, but where I got my information, it said this was the first complete Bible in English, and this had the blessing of the government in England. In 1537, we have what's called Matthew's Bible, um, it was actually John Rogers. I'm not sure why they used uh, the name Matthews, Thomas Matthews. Uh, he's a friend of Tyndall. He used Tyndall's New Testament and part of it, parts of his Old Testament and Coverdale's uh, translation for the rest of the Old Testament. This was also approved by the king. So this was the very New Testament that William Tyndall died for um, just a little bit later. Things changed that quickly. 1539, we have the Great Bible, or sometimes called the Cranmer Bible. This was the third English Bible approved by the king in five years. It was ed edited by Miles Coverdale, and the same one that did the Coverdale Bible, but he used the Matthews Bible as a basis rather than his own. And King Henry VIII required all churches to have this one. This was a pulpit Bible. Uh, it was 16 inches by 20 inches when opened, a fairly big book. And so every church was supposed to have one of these Bibles. And then we have the real good translation, the Geneva Bible, 1560. <clears throat> this was translated by people under John Calvin. Uh, this was the real Protestant Bible. This was... This was the standard. This was the one that people really, really liked. It had lots of footnotes, lots of explanation. Uh, Exodus 1.19, where the midwives lied about um, how they were supposed to, why they didn't kill the, um, 
firstborn of the Egyptians, I mean of the Israelites. Um, in the footnotes it says, it was wrong for them to lie. However, it was lawful to disobey the king. Um, so very much an anti-royalty slant there. The Old Testament was based on the Great Bible and the New Testament based on Tyndall's Bible. It was carefully revised using Hebrew and Greek texts. This is the first English Bible divided into verses and also the first one to use italics for words not found in the original text. You've probably noticed that in your King James's. Sometimes the word is in italics. And I hope you know what that means. My wife was in Sunday school class one time and they were discussing this. And so why are some words in italics? And some, some lady, bless her heart, said, well, she thinks that probably means, um, it means special emphasis. Those, those are really important. What it actually is, they put them in italics because those weren't in the text. If you want to know what the text says, read it without. Just skip them. You're not changing the word of God. But they're understood. It helps, it helps the flow. And so they put those words in, in italics. <clears throat> but the Geneva Bible was the first to do that. It was the best English Bible of its day and became the most popular, although not officially. The king didn't bless this one, obviously, with these study notes that were anti-royalty. Um, too many strongly Protestant footnotes. And even though the Church of England had broke from Catholicism, um, well, the Church of England is still what we call a high church. It's pretty um, liturgical. Uh, in some ways, be a little bit like the Catholic Church. And of course, when they first broke away from the Catholics, there was a uh, it took a long time for them to decide what they're going to be. Are they going to be more? Are they going to be Protestant? Are they going to be Catholic? And they ended up being something somewhat between. Um, even in the preface to the King James, the scriptures that are in the preface to the King James are generally from the Geneva Bible. They didn't use their own scriptures in the preface to the King James, because it was so, it's such a widely accepted Bible. In 1568, we have the Bishop's Bible. This was by Queen Elizabeth <clears throat> to replace the Great Bible. Um, she wanted something to compete with the Geneva Bible. So this was a new Bible, and this was gonna be the official, this was the official Bible, uh, but for the commoners, no. The Geneva was too good. Uh, they really didn't make the switch. And it was sort of a, some bad translation. So it talks about cast your bread upon the waters. You're familiar with that uh, phrase? It's, it's a, it's, it translated that as lay your bread on wet faces. Um, yeah, I don't know. I thought they could do better than that. In 1609, we have the Douay Reims Bible. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. This was made by the Catholics. So they had the Latin Vulgate for years, a thousand years, more than that. Um, but they made it so that they wouldn't need to use Protestant versions. This is an English version. Um, it was based on the Latin Vulgate. So they basically just used their Latin Bible, translated that into English. The New Testament actually was completed in 1582, but the complete Bible wasn't until 1609. And then in 1611, we have the King James Version. Queen Elizabeth had died. She was replaced by King James VI of Scotland, who became James I of England. So he was a Scottish king, but he yeah, has quite an interesting history there. 
but he ended up becoming a king uh, of England. So we said the English church had broken away from the Catholics. Um, but there was some that wanted to, there was some uh, English people that would have wanted to stay Catholics, but even in those that were okay with breaking away, there's some, there was a side that wanted to stay pretty close to the Catholic church, and then there was the Puritans who wanted to purify the, the church, get rid of all these things that are unbiblical. And so they, the Puritans were becoming a fairly strong political force in England, and they wanted the Church of England to become more Protestant. They had numerous requests for King James, including a new translation. Interestingly enough, he rejected all the requests except for the one about a new translation. He thought that would be a good idea. Um, and so, yes, we're going to have a new translation. He's going to be responsible for uh, promoting a new translation. It was done by a very thorough process <clears throat> using the best scholars. Um, one book I read said, in many ways, it was the culmination of 16th century English Bible translations. It was really, you look at that list of these English Bibles that have come, the King James was sort of the epitome of that. Um, and that's what they tried to do. Um, let me read a bit here. I think this is from the preface to the King James. Truly, good Christian reader, we never thought from the beginning that we should need to make a new translation or yet to make of a bad one a good one but to make a good one better, or out of many good ones, one principal good one, not justly to be accepted against, that hath been our endeavor, that our mark. So they basically tried, they, didn't say, they weren't saying, we're going to start over, we're not going to use what's come before. No, there's been some good things, but we're going to even do it even better. And had quite a process for the way they did it. Um, but it was a new Bible. And it wasn't accepted well. I mean, we have the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible works. It's great. We're used to it. It's a good translation. And so it took a while for the King James to be um, accepted. What we have today now is actually the 1769 edition. So basically, your King Jameses aren't the original ones. Um, it has spelling and wording revisions, even if, if it says, it might say up front that, I don't know if it says in your Bible um, something about uh, 1611 King James. Well, it isn't, even if it says that. Um, it might not be a good marketing thing to admit that, but <clears throat> 1769, it was Benjamin Blaney. Um, basically, there were a lot of variations that had crept in in the different uh, King James versions. They would make changes after 1611. And he basically standardized the text. He got different editions and made the best. And it hasn't been changed since then, 1769. I think partly, well, yeah, the, the church situation changed enough that, um, yeah, the king couldn't just say, here, we're going to have a new Bible translation and we're going to have a new Bible translation. Uh, things had changed enough to make that not quite as possible. In 1833, we have Noah Webster's Bible. 
after producing his dictionary, which we all know him for, he did a revision of the King James Version. And finally, in 1885, now if you know your history, so 1885, this is after the Civil War in America. So this is a long time. Uh, Lots of things have happened since 1769. Um, This was the first major English revision of the King James Version. (coughs) It also took into consideration older Greek texts that were found after the 1600s. So when the King James was written, um, it was based on Erasmus's Greek text, which is what Tyndall would have used as well. Erasmus had maybe six texts, Greek texts, manuscripts that he used. Um, he would have had some more available. I'm not sure. I, I suppose he just used the best ones, of, the ones that he had available. Uh, but we have thousands of them now. And so this would have taken some of that into consideration. <clears throat> Uh, Charles Spurgeon said this about the revised version. It was strong in Greek and weak in English. It never really took off. And in 1901, we have the ASV, American Standard Version. This was the American version of the revised version. So the revised version was a British thing. Uh, The Americans revised that as well. 1952. We have the Revised Standard Version. It removed many of the archaic expressions of the ASV. And then in 1971, we have the NASB, the New American Standard Bible. This was a revision of the ASV. Uh, It's highly literal, I hear. If you want a literal English Bible, uh, probably the NASB is one of the most literal ones. that you can have as your personal Bible. Um, I hear it's slightly awkward English. I, I, I've never read in it much, uh, so I don't know much about it. And then 1973, we have one that I suppose all of us are familiar with. <clears throat> the New International Version. And the New International Version attempted to go beyond a formal word-for-word translation to the intended meaning. Let's translate the intended meaning, not necessarily word for word. And it was revised in 2011. I think there's been other revisions as well. And then in 1982, the New King James Version, this was an update to the King James Version, still based on the same Greek text that the King James Version would have used. Um, Now, in the footnotes... It will have footnotes referring to the majority text and the Nestle Allen text. We talked about that some the other day. Uh, We'll talk about it a little bit more yet. But it conforms fairly closely to the flow of the King James. I notice if someone reads it in church, it might take me actually a little bit to catch on, oh, they're actually not reading the the King James. It's not instantly, oh, they're reading a different version. It's fairly, fairly close. In 1990, we have the New Revised Standard Version. This is an update of the RSV, and one of the things that they did here is used gender-neutral words. So you're familiar. It talks about um, men a lot in the Bible, and we know it means humans, right? I mean, there are times it doesn't mean males, but many times when it talks about men, it's just that using the term for humans, 
the NRSV would have used humans there instead of instead of uh, man when it's words that refer to both men and women. In 1996, we have the New Living Translation. Um, this um, <clears throat> version actually didn't start as a version. It started as a Bible storybook. I think it was Eugene Peter, Patterson, Peterson, I forget now. I didn't have it in my notes here. Um, <clears throat> just started doing a paraphrase of the Bible for his children. And he just put in his own words and um, read it to them. And in 1971, actually, it was published as a living Bible. And it was a paraphrase. I have an old uh, version of that. I don't know if it's for sure if it's in 1971. But the living Bible, the old one, really was a paraphrase. And it wasn't, I don't think it even claimed to be a translation. Just putting it in their own words. In 1996 was the ver first version of the New Living Translation. It was actually a translation, but in the living, style, uh, living Bible style. So <clears throat> uh, they're making a shift there. And I do occasionally read in it. Um, sometimes it's, it does pretty well with it. And in 2001 was the ESV, English Standard Version. Uh, this version tried to bridge the gap between the NASB and the NIV. So... <clears throat> They want to be more accurate to, than the NIV. And by the way, I, that's, I have a King James NIV translate, uh, parallel version here. I don't really like the NIV, but I've had this Bible for a long time, and I do like a um, parallel Bible. But it wanted to be more accurate than the NIV and better English style than the NASB. So far as what I'm used to using, as long as I can remember, we use the King James version. Now, I suppose maybe... A few of you remember using other versions. The German? Any of you remember using a German version? Okay, a few of you. <clears throat> Let's talk now about differences in translation. Why are there differences in translations? If you look at one translation and then you get another version, you see, well, it's not the same. Um, why do some let verses out? You've probably seen that, that, oh, wait a minute, this verse is not in this translation. Why are they letting it out? Or is it actually that some add verses? <clears throat> Do some translations let out some doctrines? There's, I, I don't know if this is uh, how this is in your church here. Uh, we were talking about it a little bit last night, so I think I'm not, uh, I'm not going to get my head chopped off or anything. But there are definitely teaching out there about that it needs to be one version and it's only one version. <clears throat> I have found that maybe in a setting where that is really, really strong, I, I don't know if this is go across the board, but probably they only know one language. Probably. Now, I don't know if that, if that would be your experience or not. Um, I would find probably if someone used uh, German's Luther, Luther's German Bible, um, and they, they like that, then they're probably not going to be stuck on KJV only. Um, but I do have a friend that I'm glad he's not here tonight. He's a Baptist uh, fellow. And he just, yeah, he would probably feel compelled to give a testimony tonight, uh, setting me straight. <clears throat> um, but why are there these translations, translation differences? 
Well, there's two main reasons. There's two main reasons that English versions differ. Now, I'm not talking about like the JW, the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Uh, as I understand what I've been told, they've deliberately changed theirs. There's actually deliberate changes there, but I'm not talking about that. But why do other versions differ? Well, one reason is there are textual differences. Different versions are based on different Greek texts. Now, we said there's five, we have 5,000 uh, 5, plus copies, Greek fragments, copies of the New Testament. Uh, but we can group them into three main Greek texts. <clears throat> and if you're going to translate, you're going to use one of these three texts. That, that's what everyone does. Um, there's the Nestle Allen text. It's a text that follows the um, oldest Greek texts. So it places a lot of inf emphasis on the oldest ones. Let's go by what the oldest ones say. <clears throat> um, it's sometimes called the critical text. There is the Tectus Receptus, received text. That's Latin for received text. This is basically the Greek text that was being printed at the time that the King James Version was published, was translated. <clears throat> and then we have the majority text. This text takes a different uh, approach than the Nestle Allen text. It says, no, we should probably follow the majority of the Greek texts. Probably the majority are, right, are more accurate than the oldest ones. Basically what we have is we have a few old ones and a lot more recent ones. I say more recent, I'm talking 800s or 1100s. I mean, not like just real recent, but so you have a few that are very old and then you have a lot that aren't near as old. Well, which do you go by? <clears throat> and I just want to clarify again, no matter which you go by, there, I mean, there's, there are differences. There definitely are differences, but it's not that you're going to lose any biblical doctrine unless you believe that biblical doctrine um, depends on being repeated lots of times. So if something's said once, it's not as important as something that's said twice. You don't need to keep it if it's just once. Um, I personally would believe if the Bible says it one time, we need to uh, follow it. Now, of course, the more that it's repeated, it's putting more emphasis on it. <clears throat> um, but these are the three texts that if you're going to translate from Greek, and by the way, not everyone does. I had my um, dad's first cousin, Mark Zook. I'm curious, how many, how many of you know, knew him? Okay, so Mark Zook translated the uh, Bible into Mok over in Papua New Guinea. If you've ever seen his the videos, Itau. Itau is the first one. I think there's another one. Uh, it's, it's worthwhile seeing. Um, but he translated from, he didn't know any Hebrew or Greek. He translated from English. Uh, that's permissible under, uh, was New Tribes then, it's Ethnos 360. But if you're going to translate from Greek, you're going to use one of these three. <clears throat> and different English translations are based on different ones of these. Let's look at, um, talk about these some. So let's talk about the Textus Receptus. This is the one that the King James Version is based on. It's the received text. In 1516, and I don't think I have all these details in your, in your um, outline. I don't have a copy of your outline here, do I? I don't think so. No, that's good. All right, 1516, Erasmus had a Greek 
New Testament printed. As I said earlier, Erasmus was a Catholic scholar who, though he never left the Catholic Church, spoke out against the corruption in the church. And he saw the need to study the Bible, the New Testament, in Greek. He wanted the Bible available to everyone. His original text wasn't received very well in some quarters. Um, and actually, it wasn't because of his Greek text. It was because he also he included with it a Latin version that he translated from Greek. And it was different than the real one. The Bible we've had for a 1,000 years, he's changing it. And so the objection came not to his Greek text, but to that corrupted Latin text that he had in there. Um, so there was some opposition to that. Now, before this, before he had his Greek New Testament printed, um, the only Bible that had been printed on the printing press was the Latin Bible. So the original Bible that, uh, that uh, Gutenberg print, uh, printed was the Latin Bible. Um, and the Greek Bible, if you wanted a Greek Bible, it was only in manuscript form. Someone had copied it out by hand. Uh, Erasmus was the first one to use a printing press to print it. <clears throat> and most people at that time thought, well, if we're going to translate a Bible into a common language, we should translate the Bible, which was the Latin Vulgate. Why would you go? We've been using this for a thousand years. This is the Bible. Translate from that. Um, <clears throat> and also one of the reasons perhaps that, so the printing press was available since... Uh, 1450 or so, and this is 1516. Maybe the reason no one had done it before is Greek letters. You saw them. Uh, Greek letters are harder to make than um, some of the other letters. Erasmus, in coming up with his Greek text, didn't have a complete copy of the New Testament. He didn't have a, a complete copy. He, had, he mainly used two different copies. He had a few others to compare with. Most of the copies that he had were from the 1100s or later. <clears throat> he published five editions. His first one was in, what did I say, 1516. And his last one was in 1535. He did admit that his first edition was, quote, thrown together rather than edited. I mean, he just did this fast and, um, yeah. In a few places... He didn't follow any of his Greek texts, but rather he changed the Greek to follow the Latin. Now he's, get this, he's writing a Latin, now he's writing a Greek text of the New Testament. But um, just a few, uh, you can turn to your Bibles if you want to. We'll look at these here. Uh, Acts 9, 5 and 6. Acts 9, 5 and 6. I guess I should just turn to that as well here. Verse 5 and 6. Here's what it actually said in the Greek. So you follow along there. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Now, I skipped a lot there, didn't I? Um, apparently, what is, in your, what is in your Bibles there in the King James, 
was not in his Greek text. Um, he just copied, but in the Latin Vulgate it was, apparently borrowed from Acts 22.10 and 26.14. So it's in the Bible, it's just it was at a different place. Um, because Paul's, this story is repeated in Acts 22 and also in Acts 26. And so what he did, since it was though in the Bible, I mean they've been using this version, the Latin Vulgate, for years, I guess he felt that he can't skip that much, so he just translated from Latin into Greek. Um, there's another place, 1 John 5. Verse John 5, uh, verse 7, and verse 7 and 8. You follow along there. I'll read what. For there are three that bear record, the spirits and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. You see, I skipped a whole lot there. In heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth. Um, that was not in any of the Greek texts that Erasmus had when he did his first version. Uh, but there was some pressure. He got some pressure to include it. It should be in there. And so he said, well, okay, if you find a Greek text with it in, I'll put it in my new versions. And sure enough, someone produced a Greek text um, that had it in. And so since he had said he would put it in, he put it in. Uh, with the suspicion, though, that did someone make this Greek text just so that I had to put this in? Um, but anyway, and there's a few other things like that as well. So he was compiling a Greek text, and his Greek text has some things not found in any known Greek manuscripts. came from the Latin Vulgate. Now, perhaps, there, perhaps these were there originally. It's possible. I mean, the Latin Vulgate was translated from uh, Greek way back when. Perhaps what the, the text that they used would have had that. If so, we haven't found those texts. We haven't found those manuscripts yet. Maybe, maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. But we don't have any uh, Greek proof for it, as far as I know. So Erasmus print, printed his uh, Greek text, several different versions, after his death. Robert Stephanus published four editions, a drawing from Erasmus's text and another text. And he divided the New Testament into verses. This was the first. This was the first that the Greek New Testament had been divided into verses. By the way, the Old Testament had been divided into verses in the 800s. But remember, originally, verses aren't given. Chapters aren't given. That's not coming from God. That's just people said, you know what? Why don't we divide it into chapters? It'd be easier to... Uh, know where we're at and easier to, well, yeah, it's just a lot easier. I'm glad they've done so. Uh, but the only, quote, chapters that are from God um, are the Psalms. So just don't say Psalm chapter 1. It's not chapter 1. Chapter is a man-made thing. Psalm 1 is not a man-made thing. Psalm 1 was given as Psalm 1, well, as a psalm. I don't know if it was for sure Psalm 1, but it was given as a psalm by God. So that's the difference between the psalms and chapters. <clears throat> Um, so, this Stephanus divided the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, into verses. Um, the chapters, so the Old Testament verses had been put in, 18, in the 800s, 
the chapters in the New Testament had been added in the 1200s. So the chapters were done uh, uh, 300 years before the verses were done. So after him, Theodore Beza published nine editions without making many changes. And the KJV translators used that text. So now that's a lot of detail to keep track of. But basically, what the uh, King James translators used was the text that Erasmus came up with. And then there was a bunch of other people in between there and so forth. But it was still basic, based on his text. That's Texas Receptus. Texas Receptus. But it wasn't Texas Receptus at that point yet. That, when the King James was written, no one knew about the Texas Receptus. It wasn't until 1633 there was a publishing house that printed an edition of this text with this sales pitch. You have, ne- you have therefore the text now received by all in which we give nothing altered or corrupt. It was a sales pitch that this is the received text. And that's how we call it, why we call it the Texas Receptus. It wasn't the received text. It wasn't called the received text when the King James Version was first done. Um, it's a marketing slogan, which seems sort of crazy. I mean, if you know anything about marketing, um, you want to make your thing sound good, whatever it is. Um, you have all kinds of things you want to say. And I didn't know that the Texas Receptus came from a marketing slogan. Um, but that's, that's what happened there. <clears throat> this Greek text was used by scholars and translators in the Western world for the next 300 years. So this was the Greek text. That's the Texas Receptus. That's the story of it. Based, basically, it's based on the text that Erasmus, is, Erasmus used, um, and most of those were fairly late, 1100 um, Greek texts. The Nestle Allen text. This is the text that follows the oldest Greek text. Well, <clears throat> many scholars were troubled by how few texts the Texas Receptus was based on. Many more Greek texts were found since the Texas Receptus was printed. Um, in 1859, the Sinaiticus was found. It was found in a monastery at Mount Sinai. It's believed to have been made in the 300s. It's the only complete Greek New Testament manuscript in Unicles, which was a capital script that he used up to 800. So this is the only complete um, Greek New Testament manuscript. And there are basically three groups of texts. So there's these three Greek texts that you can translate from. There's three groups of texts. There's the Alexandrian, which are the oldest ones. So Sinaiticus would be one of those. There's the Western group, and there's the Byzantine group. Um, By the way, we can group these manuscripts because of the variations in them. If they vary this way, they're in this group. If they vary this way, they're in this group. If they vary this way, they're in this group. So the um, Alexandrian are the oldest ones. The Western group of texts, nobody translates from them because everyone recognizes that they're pretty loose. Uh, it's pretty paraphrasish, um, quite a bit more than the others do. Uh, the Byzantine text, which most of the manuscripts that we have are part of that, um, and it's a much smoother translation. So. <clears throat> In 1881, Westcott and Horst published a Greek text based on the study that had been done since the Texas Receptus, and it gives priority to the Alexandrian text, or the oldest ones. And the Nestle Allen text is based on this text. It's gone through many different editions, and if you've, if you've uh, studied at all about the King James-only controversy, you probably know about Westcott and Horst. Uh, I mean, they're bad guys. 
Uh, I don't know. I'm not going to stand in judgment. I don't know. Um, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But anyway, uh, the Nesta Allen text is based on that text after many revisions. All the modern major, all the major modern English translations are based on the Nesta Allen, as far as I know. So any English version you're using, if you have it printed out like this, it's based on Nestle Allen text. Uh, ESV, CSB, uh, just a whole host of them. Um, yeah. There are some, like I used uh, eSword as a study guy, study uh, computer program for studying the Bible. Um, there they have the modern King James Version and the majority version and so forth. Um, I was just looking online a little bit. You can maybe buy some of those New Testaments, but basically um, you can get them online. So there are some versions based not on the Nestle Allen text, uh, but as far as I know, you can't go buy a Bible but with it uh, in book form. The majority text, <clears throat> most scholars agree that the Alexandrian are the oldest and closest to the original. However, not everyone agrees that they're the most accurate. There are some scholars that argue no. The Byzantine texts are the most accurate, which would be what the majority text. Um, and the Textus Receptus is based on a few of the Byzantine family. You can follow this all. So there's a few old ones. That's what the Nasser Allen text is based on. There's a whole pile of them. Ignore the Western uh, thing. There's a whole pile of them that are in the Byzantine family. And that would be the majority text. It's based on that the Texas Receptus would be based on a few of those in that family. <clears throat> um, so the text, the majority text, this Greek text that you could use to translate from, is based on the majority of the Greek texts available rather than the oldest copies. Um, <clears throat> and that's a difference, textual differences. Do you go by the majority or do you go by the oldest ones? Uh, I might have my opinion, but... Yeah, there's disagreement on that. So when looking at different versions, be careful when saying a version is letting out verses. When, that's hap when that happens, it's not letting out verses. Rather, it's not putting in verses that aren't in the Greek text that that translation is based on. So it's not letting out verses. It's just not adding verses that weren't in the text that this was translated from. So same way there in Acts 8. Ethiopian eunuch, he wanted to be baptized, and we know uh, Paul, uh, the, uh, who was it there? Philip said, you can be baptized. I forget exactly how he said it, but he said that, and I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? We use that in our baptisms. That's what the applicants say. That's not found in uh, the Nestle Allen text. And so if you use an ESV or one of the more modern translations, it won't be in there. Not that they let it out, but it wasn't in their text that they translated from. So it doesn't reduce at all that Jesus is the Son of God. All texts, no matter what they're based on, all, all English versions, no matter what texts they're based on, have Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So... Just because it doesn't have that other one doesn't mean it don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. God's word is forever settled in heaven. 
But he's chosen to preserve it on earth, even though the process can seem rather confusing. We trust that he indeed has preserved his message here on earth. And remember, in all this I'm saying, the differences, 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 you're hearing that. Ultimately, the differences are insignificant. There is no biblical doctrine at stake. Unless you believe a doctrine is at stake if it's mentioned eight times versus ten times. Does that change the doctrine? I mean, if you believe that, well, then I guess there would be some things at, uh, at stake. <clears throat> the differences in the Greek text are not greater than the commonalities. So we can talk about all the differences. Well, yes, there are differences. We need to be honest about that. But there's a lot that is the same. So let's not forget that. So that's one reason that translations differ because they use, they're being translated from different Greek texts. Uh, there's another reason that translations differ, and that's there's different philosophies of translation. Translation is tough. If you think, well, if I would translate, I would just translate it word for word. Well, I'm sorry, you just don't know much about translating. Uh, and your translation, no one would use it, except maybe you. Um, there's two main philosophies. <clears throat> one is what was sometimes was sometimes called formal equivalence or word-based. It's if you uh, hear people talking about a literal, well, a literal translation. This is what they're talking about. The King James is not literal in the sense that it just takes the Greek word and puts the English word there, and then the Greek word, English word, Greek word, English word, Greek word, English word. You wouldn't be able to read it very well at all. That's an interlinear Bible. It's not what you want to use. It's not what you want to use as your Bible. Remember I said, if a translation is done well, you shouldn't be able to tell it was a translation. It just reads like it was written this way, okay? So you can't go word for word, word for word, word for word without changing it, the order around at all. Um, that might sound great, but there's problems. We'll get into that a little more. The other thought is dynamic equivalence or functional equivalence is sometimes called. That's more meaning-based. Let's accurately convey the meaning. Now, how do you actually do it? It's easy to spout theories and to actually apply them in practice, and I'm not a translator. But when you're translating, you need to consider accuracy. It does need to be accurate. You want that what we come up with is accurate. It has to be, we need to consider clarity. Is it, can you understand it? It might be ever so accurate, but if you can't understand it, well, then it's Greek to you. And it also, we need to consider beauty. Or is it nice? <laughs> a translation should seem like a, a native thing. It should feel natural, like it's written this way. And if you'd actually do it word for word in the order that it is, well, if you know Dutch and uh, English, you know you lose a lot of meaning if you just, oh, a lot of meaning. What isn't right? I mean, you don't come to Rivel. Come. What would it be? Here over or something like that. I guess it would be right. Come here over. Now I could say come here over, and you'd know what I mean, right? But come here over. You should look. What's wrong with you? No, it's come over here. Okay. So you have to change. And that's just one little example. There's other things. I mean, depends. Yeah, I, I don't. You can probably come up with better ones, but. Even things like, you know, I'd say aura for fror and buggy for. 
was sort of funny in English, I mean in German. So he froze his ears when he was driving his buggy. It's not even funny in English. I mean, what, what about it? But he, it's a, or, if, or if you're from Indiana like me, you have to audit for frog and buggy paw. Um, but you totally lose that. If you would translate that literally, you totally lose it. Um, it's not even funny. Okay, you got the... And is, and is... When there was something that was supposed to be funny. Now, I'm not a Bible translator, so I can't say, well, here it was supposed to be funny. But that kind of thing happens. When it's supposed to be something like that, and you translate it and don't include that, did you translate it accurately? I mean, you said the exact words, but you missed something of the meaning. <clears throat> when going from one language to another, sometimes there isn't an equivalent word, especially when the languages are very different. In some, I mean, Greek to English is pretty easy because they're sort of in the same language family. Um, this fellow translated into a uh, Papua New Guinea language and it is just totally 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 different you can absolutely cannot go word for word it can't be a literal translation if it's in that language it's impossible because it's totally set up differently um, you can read it I, can, I can't explain it all I don't have it all memorized how, I explain it very well there but often words have only partial overlap so we talk about the Greek logos, mostly translated word in the King James. Yet, the King James actually uses 23 other English words to translate that word. So 23, 24 words to translate logos. Many times it uses word, but it has 23 other words that it uses for the same Greek word. <clears throat> in a few places, the King James totally skips it. There's logos in the Greek, and it's not in the... King James, just missing totally, without changing the meaning. Now, a question comes, though, is dynamic equivalence, dynamic equivalence, is that translation or exposition? If you take it too far, well, let's go about the meaning. What is the meaning here? Well, then you're deciding what the meaning is, and then you're tra translating the meaning. Well, no, are you sure that's the meaning? That's, that's your explanation of what the text says. You do want a Bible that's not just an exposition, what the translator thought the Bible meant. You do want something that, at least I want something that I can say, this is what the Bible said, not just what the translator thought it meant. I'm going to need to get going here because I'm going to run out of time here. Um, what about the amount of words? Turn to Revelation 22. We should turn to that. You're familiar with that. If any man shall take away from the words of the prophecy of this book, some people are troubled when a translation doesn't have a word the King James does. Now, I already explained that can be because of following a different Greek text that doesn't contain that word in that place. Is it wrong when the translation adds or takes away words, when it actually literally does? Well, takes away from what? You can't judge it against the King James because that wasn't how, what it was written in. You'd have to judge it against the original. Now, actually, the Greek text for this passage, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, has 61 to 65 words. It depends if you go with the Texas Receptus or the critical text. But 61 to 65 words for these two verses. The King James has 81 words. In a passage where it talks about adding to the Bible and God condemning you, it added lots of words. 
Um, Matthew 1, 1 to 16, has 246 words in the Texas Receptus. The King James has 226. That he took out words. Um, so this thing about, well, there's a word missing or there's extra word. Well, if that actually is a legitimate critique, then I guess that rules out the King James because the King James does that too. <clears throat> Personally, this is where I'm at. I think a formal equivalence translation is best. We do want to know that what we're reading is how the original read as far as is possible. It contains all the complexities and shades of meaning. And that's what would be my critique about the NIV. Um, it seems like what it does there is it takes, so it says something, and I'm just comparing King James to uh, NIV, but it says something, and it could mean, could mean this, it could mean this, it could mean this. And it really could mean that. The NIV translates one of those. Now, it's tough when you translate to put it in words that you keep all three of those meanings, those three possible meanings. That's tough, but there's other translations that do a better job of that. <clears throat> The meaning-based ones can be used as good commentaries, and they can give a fresh perspective. If you've only ever read the Bible in King James Version, then I would probably encourage you to pick up another version and read it. Um, it might freshen things up a bit. <clears throat> These philosophies are on a continuum, um, from formal equivalence to dynamic equivalence. Here's a whole list of uh, modern versions. And you can see which ones are dynamic. By the way, version. The message shouldn't be called a version, in my opinion. I, don't, I think it's officially considered a version, but uh, that's really, really loose. Um, any of you ever read in the message? Okay, you haven't lost much other than just the knowledge of, wow, some people would use this as their Bible. I mean, it is pretty rough. Um, so you can see where they are on the continuum of that. <clears throat> well, I need to keep moving here. The Bible is for all. Remember, at one time, our ancestors didn't have the Bible in their language. We saw how it was translated into English, and maybe you just a jumble of things. But hopefully, at least remember this. It took a lot of people and a lot of effort, William Tyndall especially. What about those who still don't have the Bible in their language? Are there people like that? Well, here are the latest statistics that I could get. This is from Wycliffe, uh, 2021. So there are 717 languages here <clears throat> that have a complete Bible. Um, they, they have a total of 7,378 known living languages. So there's 7,300 known living languages, including sign languages. That's a new thing in Bible translation. Should people that just do sign language, should they be able to have the Bible in their language? Now, obviously, it would have to be video-based. And I didn't know this. I thought sign language is sign language. No, there's hundreds of sign languages. They're different sign languages. So anyway, there are 717 with a complete Bible. By the way, the last time I did this, my statistics were from 2015, and the complete Bibles there were 554. So there's been progress made, um, but still a lot a lot, a lot to do. Although, I would want to point this out. Look at the people. There's a lot more people. Uh, the majority of the people in the world are in those languages that have a full Bible. People at the bottom. These are, represent uh, 25 million people. So most of the people in the world have 
the, New the whole Bible in their language. But the vast majority of the people in the world do. And then some have uh, just a New Testament, some have just portions, and some don't have any. Now, so it depends how you want to look at this. Well, great. It's pretty much done. Unless you're one of those people represented over there, and each one of those is 25 million people. And by the way, what about if you're here in the New Testament? You have the New Testament. Do you need more than that? I mean, really, if you're going to be a Bible translator, you should be a New Testament translator because that's the most important thing, right? Except what about us, though? I mean, if you just have the New Testament, really? There's actually probably more need. Well, there is. I mean, look at the need for Old Testament translators. This is complete Bibles, and that's um, New Testaments. Or here's the complete Bible, and that's New Testaments. There's quite a few languages that need an Old Testament done. <clears throat> um, here is the breakdown, their latest breakdown of needs, different languages. By the way, languages don't need translations. People do. Sometimes we can almost forget that. It's not languages. It's people that need translations. There's almost 1,900 still needed. Now, there are some languages that no longer have enough people speaking it to make it feasible for a translation. Approximately 200 languages that we know no longer have any first language users. In other words, it's, no, it's nobody's first language. They know this language, but they, it's not their first language or their heart language. Um, almost 200, in addition, have less than 12 native speakers, the last anyone counted. <clears throat> and some of these people do know, okay, so these, they, these languages need translated. The people that speak these languages need a Bible translation, but they do know another language where there is a Bible available already. Now, do they still need one? Well, I know Pennsylvania Dutch. I don't, do any of you read the Pennsylvania uh, Dutch New Testament? I know Dad does sometimes. He'll, he'll read that for his devotions, out of that for his devotions. If I were to have to read out of that, I mean, I think I could get a good bit of it, a sort of-ish. I mean, I could at least get half the words, and I could probably figure out, because I know the Bible already, what the rest means. Um, but that's not, that's not enough. There's still a lot of work to do. And we can be part of this work. And I, I'm, I'm thankful that God has raised up all nations' Bible translations. I remember about 20 years ago telling a student, very academically gifted student, I told her, you know, you ought to consider being a Bible translator. But even as I said that, I knew not what it meant. What she comes back and says, Mr. Preacher, I'd like to do that. Where should I go? I'd be like, uh, uh, well, um, I mean, I don't have time to get into it, but no, I wouldn't in encourage you to go with Wycliffe or Ethnos 360, as New Tribes is now known. Uh, they're good organizations. All Nations is very indebted to them. And I just would say this. So uh, Dad's first cousin, Mark Zook, was very instrumental, very, very helpful when All Nations got started, um, up to the time of his death. And Steve Sanford, who is on the national board of Ethnos 360, um, is, is the, took his place. So we are very indebted, I say we. I was on the board till Leroy took my place here at the end of, uh, beginning of this year. <clears throat> but, um, I don't say that to slam these organizations. We do have a different view of the the gospel, I should say, though. So um, I'm glad that if someone says something to me now, I do have someone, someplace to send them. And you as a congregation played a role in that. 
this is the setting that Joel Martin grew up in. Now, even though he's not part of you now, you still shaped him majorly. And like I said, Leroy took my place on the board. And I just want to bless you as a congregation for what you have done and are doing. And we can all be involved. Prayer. How's it someone said? When man works, man works. When man prays, God works. Uh, you can pray. You can pray. Any age here, you can pray. Pray for those people. Imagine. No Bible in a language they can understand. Um, the one, the uh, Kutai people over in India, where there's a team, an all-nations team over there, it's interesting. I don't know, how many of you get the emails from all nations? Okay, some of you do. You More of you should, if you get emails anyway. You can also get the newsletters, but the emails have more information. And um, one of the men that's over there on the, on the team talked about the Kutai people, which that's not their real name, it's a code name, but in 1525, they converted to Islam. That's when our ancestors the Anabaptists started. Okay, they were I, probably some folk religion. But Islam came and they converted to Islam and they're strongly Islamic. So it's sort of like us. You know, we, we're Anabaptists. You know, for a long time. Well, they're, they're Muslims for a long time. <clears throat> you can uh, do research on the website. Uh, the All Nations website has lots of interest. If you haven't been on it, you can there's lots of information that you can, you can learn so that you can pray with knowledge. You can check out Wycliffe or Ethnos 360. There are reasons that the places, the languages, the people that don't have translations yet don't have them. The easy ones have been done. The easy as in, a tip, as in the easy ones with lots of speakers, uh, or it's easy to be there, you're permitted to be there, or it's an easy language to do. Those are the ones that have been done. The places that haven't been done, it might be difficult situations. Maybe you can't be there as a translator. Maybe there's demonic strongholds. So I just think about the Kutai people. Since 1525, the devil has had them in a grip. And they converted to the truth. He's had them deceived for as long as Anabaptists have been around. You can pray. If it's going to work, they might be able to translate the Bible, but if it's going to do anything, it's not going to be because... It's going to be because people pray. We can support financially. Oops. We can support financially. It's expensive. Um, it's a huge cost. The figure I've heard, the general figure, how much does it cost to do a translation? A million dollars for each translation. I, I don't know. I don't know what's going to be. We tend to do things cheaper as Mennonites, right? Uh, I don't know, but that's a figure, a general figure. If you're younger than me, you can possibly go. If you're my age, you're not going to go as a translator, sorry. You're, you're too old. I'm 45. <clears throat> you can be a translator. You can be a community development person, someone to facilitate the possibility of translators being there. By the way, if you do go with all nations, your church has to send you. All nations will not send you. All nations facilitates churches sending people. So all, there's no all nations missionaries on the field. I mean, yes, we use that term sometimes, but I, I've always tried to stress when I was on the board that no, these are not our missionaries. They're the church's missionaries. We're going alongside of the church, and you would actually have to have a committee and a support team in place, and monies, even that all nations provides, comes here. They are your missionaries. So 
Maybe God can raise someone up from here. The churches are the primary senders. <clears throat> well, just some observations now. I have five minutes. Okay. As I think about this whole subject of how we got the Bible, I think I have five observations. I think the devil want, would like us to quibble over the wrong issues and miss the important ones. <clears throat> Two stories. I was at a friend's church where the preacher said something like this. We'll die for the KJV. And the audience was, amen. Yet in that same church, America and the church were confused. The preacher entitled his message, When God is no longer welcomed in the church. And he spoke about how in America, God's not welcomed anymore. Now that's jarring for me as an Anabaptist. When God's no longer welcome in the church. But he didn't even talk about it. He was talking about in America, you know, taking the Bible out of schools and all this and this and this and so forth. Another story, I was talking with a customer. He was a long-haired, gun-loving man. Somehow we got to talking about church. And he didn't want to hear anything about our church unless we used the KJV. If you don't use the KJV, then nope, nope, nope. Now, he admitted he doesn't go to church regularly, but he does know which version is the correct one. The problem is not having the wrong version. It's not following what the version that we have says. <clears throat> I think we should be more concerned about study Bibles than only having one version. I don't know. I didn't look. I don't know if you have study Bibles. You know what I mean? The so-and-so study Bible. And then down at the bottom explains what it means. Those are dangerous. That's someone's opinion. Is that what it says? You don't need a study Bible to see what it says. It can be a means of adopting the doctrine of those that killed the early Anabaptists. Now, I'm not talking about a center reference, Thompson Chain, or you can get Greek, uh, Hebrew def definitions. Those can be good when you link from word, uh, verse to verse and so forth. Rather, I'm talking about application Bible or a devotional Bible or teen or women or men's Bible. <clears throat> and don't they affect us more than we think maybe? Because when we read something, we're not quite sure what it means. We look down there. And we might say, oh, well, that's probably not right. Depends on what it is. But I think it affects us more. I had a personal example from Daniel 2 of Henry Morris Study Bible. I do have one. Henry Morris was given to me. Henry Morris was an early creationist. And I was looking at Daniel 2, and it talks about uh, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. It talks about these ki different kingdoms, the vision, um, and then the kingdom of God. And he, you know, Henry Morris is strongly against the gap theory in creation, but he believes in the gap theory because he said what well, that new kingdom that comes is never going to end, that's going to come end, end, uh, when Jesus comes in the thousand year reign. No, it's not. Jesus brought that in already. We are living in that. But if I wouldn't have been up to that, I'd have probably, okay, yeah, it makes sense. It's much better to have ver different versions to uh, compare rather than using study Bibles. God inspired the originals with no mistakes, and he keeps the translations accurate, though they're not inspired. Our trust is in God, not in a perfect Bible. It is true, even from a histor strictly historical perspective, without faith, we have more confidence that we know what the Bible originally said than any other ancient book, just from a strictly historical, secular perspective. <clears throat> Our faith is founded in God 
not on a particular translation or version. We don't look for a particular version that permits us to do what we want. We're not following Christ, are we, if we're doing that? Our faith is not in the book, but in the God of the book. Yet he is the God of the book. I do think it's good for a church to have a common translation for public worship. <clears throat> I, re I really think so. Um, now, I am disturbed, though, how many of my students, we do Bible memory using the King James Version, and you get a student that's you know, not necessarily gifted academically, and they say this, they're repeating their Bible memory to me, and I know they don't have a clue what they're saying because they wouldn't say it that way if they knew what they were saying. And that troubles me. <clears throat> Languages change over time. And I'm not saying all versions are equally good. I think I would avoid the loose Bibles for your regular Bible. You can use those to read. But I think for your regular Bible, you want a version that is fairly formally equivalent. You don't have to check the Greek all the time to make sure that's actually what it says. Personally, if you use another version, I would recommend the New King James or the ESV. The New King James, you can read, like I said, you can almost read that in church and other, everyone else having a King James, and it won't be much of an issue. Um, ESV is a little bit more different, and, you know, I don't know. It's based on the Nestle Island Greek text. One of the things I would really miss if we were to go with that totally is the end of the uh, Lord's Prayer, because it's not in that Greek text. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now, does that change any doctrine? Of course it is anyway. But I do like to say it that way, so I don't know. Um, <clears throat> all people should have the Bible in their heart language. <clears throat> it's just as important for others to have the Bible in their heart language as it is for us. And the reason we need a Bible translation is so the church can prosper. The point of a Bible translation is not a Bible translation. If, if you have a Bible translation and a church doesn't start, I think it's a failure. The tra Bible translation is so the church can grow. That's the point of it. And unfortunately, it hasn't always happened. With one organization, from what I hear, 50 to 75% of their translations never got used. 50 to 70%, 75%. There's a lot of opportunity there. <clears throat> I'll just let you see these two books here. Um, I would highly recommend those if you want to do more reading on the subject and I need to quit because my time is up. Lord bless you. <clears throat>